This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. In today's episode, we've got an interview with Nick Davis of the SSI Group, who talked with me about the importance of good patient financial communication. Later in a sponsored segment, HFMA's Todd Nelson speaks with Ryan Self of EPSI about best practices for healthcare organizations seeking to incorporate data analytics in their operations. All that's coming up right now. As we all know, the coronavirus has changed the clinical and financial landscape of healthcare. But good patient financial conversations are crucial to revenue cycle performance and patient satisfaction. Today's guest, Nick Davis, Vice President of Patient Access Product Management for the SSI Group, talked with me about how to build a culture around good patient financial conversations. The patient financial conversation is so important to get right, but it's a struggle for many healthcare organizations. Nick, you've shared with us um, in our correspondence prior to this recording, three strategies to get started. The first being to give staff the tools they need to accurately estimate out-of-pocket costs. It seems like the technology is there, but how can you train your staff to use it and to incorporate it into the patient financial conversation? That is a very important challenge that any provider uh, utilizing the tool set for estimation that they have to overcome. Luckily, you know, we can learn from our, our peers and really looking at best practices that have been successful in other organizations, really build out a plan to ensure our staff are fully utilizing and incorporating the tools we've provided successfully into that patient financial conversation. Some of those best practices in, in no specific order the first one is going to be publishing your hospital's collection policy. Now, you need to make these easily accessible to the patient and to the guarantor. And these policies need to include things like self-pay and prompt pay discounts, as well as refund policies. The collection policies need to be utilized and incorporated with the estimation letters that are provided so that they are easily understood by the patient so that they really can take advantage of understanding the hospital collection policy. The next best practice is to create a certification program. So anybody who is patient-facing, who's going to be providing estimates to the patient and discussing having that financial conversation, needs to be certified before they actually engage with the patient. This is really important to making sure you have consistency across all of the people that are, are generating estimates and having these discussions. Now, training is not a one-time event. Training really should be ongoing because things change, policies change, uh, new situations come up. And so one of the things that's, that's worked really well with a number of our customers is to have their subject matter experts shadowing staff and providing on-the-fly training so that they can help them address difficult discussions. And this also gives the hospital the opportunity to identify staff that need to go back through that certification process and get recertified. 
I think equally as important as having that process and the policies published is you really have to make providing estimates part of your culture for the healthcare organization. You need to provide estimates really on every single scheduled service as a goal. Now, one of the ways that hospitals can do this is by automating the estimation process. When, when you automate the generation of the estimate and the estimate letter, you remove a lot of the potential for human error, really increase your staff productivity, and, and allow them also to focus on the patient instead of focusing on pushing buttons inside of a digital solution. That's a really interesting point. You talk about the culture um, and, and incorporating that, providing estimates into your culture. That's something that I've heard a lot about from healthcare organizations that we've worked with that they're not used to doing that. Their patient access folks are not used to having those conversations. And some people actually feel uncomfortable having those conversations or asking a patient for money, even though it is a part of the business. It hasn't been part of their job in the past. And so there's there's a shift in thinking that has to occur there. Absolutely. And, you know, it really requires a top-down approach. You can't really allow each department to decide whether or not they're going to generate estimates or collect from the patient. It really has to be at the, the top level of, of access, where it's a mandate that goes out to to the entire organization. Now, you may not start with doing estimations for every service. You know, there's a there's an approach to how you do this where do the high dollar repetitive ones first, get those people used to it, and then expand into your other departments. But you really have to have the objective of providing estimates for any scheduled service. The second strategy that you mentioned is to use data to tailor communications to a patient's needs. Can you give me an example of how that might work? Before we actually get into the example, let's talk about what we mean by data here. So, so the data we're talking about here really relates to tailoring the conversation after the staff has identified the patient's financial responsibility, they know the estimated amount that that patient's going to owe. It's really important to have established guidelines to determine if and how the consumer can pay. So when we say data in this tailored conversation, it really is around financially clearing that patient's ability to pay. Once you have the information about patients' propensity to pay and financial aid, which typically is going to come from a uh, credit and community-based solution, or I guess ideally, you want to be able to segment the patients into the appropriate workflow based on the information that you've got back. So some examples. You always want staff to collect from a patient who can afford to pay and doesn't have a significant financial responsibility. So if I owe $50, I want my staff asking for that money every single time. For the vast majority of patients, another example, this is probably the most common example in our our market space today, is patients can afford to pay some, but not all of the cost of their care at the point of service. This is really where the data we talk about to tailor the discussion becomes very important. You can use the patient's payment history at the facility, along with their ability, their likelihood to pay upfront and their ability to pay over time and their history of paying over time to identify an appropriate, convenient, and flexible payment option for those types of patients. Uh, And you really need to be able to support all different payment types to to successfully manage this discussion. Some convenient ways to do that, automated recurring payments are are a big one. Another big one is prompt pay and self-pay discounts. 
by pay at the point of service or within a certain number of days, or if I have no insurance, providing discounting mechanisms to help that patient afford their care. Another one, financing options is, is a good, uh, good option for larger balances. And you want to provide digital tools like online payment portals and the ability to receive um, estimates and bills via text, via email, really based on the consumer's preference in that, in that engaged discussion. And the last thing under the, the patients who can pay some but not all, uh, storing their payment information and making sure that your collection policies and your, your forms allow you to retain their information really allows for easy recurring payment down the road if they come back to the facility. And then lastly, the last example I've got for you in terms of tailoring conversation. You have patients who either cannot pay or who don't have insurance, and you need to assess those patients for financial aid, such as Medicaid eligibility or such as charity care eligibility. So one of the things we, we go into every one of our, our customers and talk about is don't ever assume an uninsured patient doesn't actually have insurance. Go out and at least make sure that they aren't covered by Medicaid because a lot of times a provider can enroll a patient in Medicaid and they may not even know about it. So first check for Medicaid. And then, you know, based on whether you find they have it or not, make sure you get that person routed to your expert financial counselors because the last thing we want is for that patient to come in, receive service, and end up in collections. So the third thing you mentioned is uh, digital tools for patient engagement. What kind of return have you seen on this kind of technology, and how can a provider empower their staff to support use of these tools with actual conversations with patients? A lot of factors will impact the percentage of return on investment uh, on digital tools, but, but I think regardless of uh, of the percentages, which can be very significant, they always fall, the ROI always falls into a set of buckets of about five buckets. The, the first and probably most obvious is increased collections, specifically with the focus at the point of service. You know, a lot of the studies in, uh, that are out there show that, you know, engaging the consumer early and having this discussion drastically increases your, your collection rates. When you do that, you're also improving your cash flow because you're getting the money up front. And you're also reducing your, your working capital cost. So that's another place where ROI is significant. You get productivity improvements. You know, for facilities that are generating estimates manually today, that can be a significant effort and, and take a lot of time for their staff. So having, you know, automation of some of these processes really improves productivity. And when you increase your collections on the front end, you really are also going to decrease your collection expenses and also reduce your bad debt. So the, the ROI is going to fall into those buckets, and it does vary between facilities, but it, it certainly is significant. Hi, I'm Joe Pfeiffer, President and CEO of HFMA. Without question, we're living in uncertain times during this COVID-19 pandemic, and the amount of information online and in your inbox must be pretty overwhelming. HFMA is helping its members make sense of it all. We've set up a special page on our website to provide members with a consolidated view of COVID-19 news coverage and its effect on healthcare finance. Visit hfma.org, click Topics, then Coronavirus. We also invite you to share your thoughts and concerns with other members in HFMA's community. Although many of us are practicing social distancing, 
we can lean on each other during this challenging time. This is a time to band together, and the entire HFMA staff is here to support you. In addition, I and the CEOs of ACHE, AMGA, MGMA, AAPL, and NAHQ have collaborated to sync up our resources. We're providing you the best resources we have available right now, collectively, to help you manage the evolving nature of COVID-19. We encourage you to visit the sites, and there'll be links on each other's sites on our websites, and use the information free of charge. We will be updating resources as we learn more. By working together, we will be better armed to advance the health and fulfill the missions that founded our great organizations. We're here for you. Let me end by thanking you for all that you do for your organization, for HFMA, and the healthcare industry at large. Thank you. Hello, my name is Todd Nelson, Director of Partner Relationships and Chief Partnership Executive for HFMA. In today's episode, we will hear from Ryan Self, Vice President of Professional Services for EPSI, who will share insights he has gained from working with customers from across the nation. Ryan, thank you for joining me today. I know we did some survey work together with some of the HFMA members, so I think today we should talk about some of that as, as well as what you're seeing out there in the industry. More and more, we're hearing about the importance of incorporating real-time analytics, especially in this rapidly changing environment. What we're seeing right now, working with our clients and talking to people across the country, is that the real-time focus has largely started in the clinical setting, which would make sense because the data is there. It's just like kind of what's going on with COVID right now. There's a lot of reprojection or recasting of the, the data that's already occurred, um, but point-in-time information. And so that's what we're seeing quite a bit these days is real-time looks into um, EMR, in-house patients, a lot of those hub models being set up across the country where different facilities will have a you know specific location that can, at any point in time, cast out and look at patients that are in-house, anticipated volume coming in based on scheduling, and, and look at what's going on clinically, where people are from an ADT perspective. Um, on the cost side, we're a little bit behind in that arena. And in, in talking with an executive CEO of one of the top 50 hospitals in the country, you know, his whole point and struggle to me was, I can get the real-time information out on my EHR. I can see what's going on on my patients. I can project out revenue, but I'm, I'm flying blind in terms of my expense side. And so some of our kind of cutting edge leading clients that we work with have gotten to this point and we're continuing to work with them. But really it's about getting that financial data. And if you think about basic math, right, you need two pieces of an equation and both have to be at the same level of detail, significant figure kind of math in the sense that if we're going to get to real time from a finance and expense management perspective and operationally, you need to have matching levels of detail when it comes to the patient as well as to the cost that feeds it. And what I mean by that is you can't have patient detail at every 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes that tells you exactly where someone is, what treatments they're receiving, but then have the cost detail from your ERP tool that's aggregated on a daily, biweekly, monthly basis. If those two things don't match up, then you really don't have real-time data. So, Ryan, it seems like one of the obstacles to really being able to do real-time analytics, obviously, is the data. Are there other ones that uh, organizations are encountering when they start to head towards implementing analytics, especially at a real-time perspective? 
Yeah, that's another fascinating thing that came out of the survey, and it matches up exactly with conversations that I've been having with people as well. And we've kind of termed it the idea of waiting cost. A true accountant would tell you that you need to use the term opportunity cost, but it's this idea that health systems are waiting today, waiting on data to feed action. And there's two kind of subcomponents if you really think about it. Uh, the first is is what we were just talking about, kind of outdated data. You know, the idea that whether it be because it takes five days to close month in books and you have, you're looking at the GL for your values. I mean, more often it's less around necessarily the data, but the fact we, we are a pattern focused institution or group of people, if you will, in that we wait until not the first time an inefficiency shows up because we might consider that just a blip or a one-time event, but it's the second or third time. And so if you think about, you know, outdated data that we're getting today, the second or third time might be the second or third month that that occurs. Maybe if it's payroll related, it's the second or third pay period that we see the same inefficiencies occurring. And so that's piece one, right, is the idea of how do you reduce the time to get to that sample size and that, that quantity, if you will, of measure that helps you to say this is a pattern we need to go address. And then the second thing that we heard, and it was a matching level of reason that people thought it would be inhibitors to analytical success, is the idea of culture costs. And I think culture is a very nebulous term. Um, it's interpreted by several in different ways. Our conversations with some clinicians at a health system in North Carolina in particular, you know, the idea of culture cost for them is the fact that it's not that clinicians don't want to make change. They don't want to do what's right. But they're getting beat up over the head for data that was two, three months old at that point. The fact that when you have a big problem, you throw a big team at it, right? You've got to get clinicians represented, you got to get an operator represented, you got to get finance represented. And so you have a, a really small problem that's maybe $1,000 of inefficiency a day that you throw a team of eight to 10 people at, and they have to debate it and beat it up for six months, take it to a steering committee for approval. And so you've really spent eight months trying to go after a problem that if you had better data could have been transformed the day it started to occur. So when you think about goals for an organization's analytics program, how should they go about determining those goals and what are some of the viable goals for analytics? I really would reference to, I think, organizations that are doing a great job. So I'd say three things that have stuck out as I watched these two organizations in particular go through their journey. The first, and this is kind of shocking, but the other thing that we found in the research was that a lot of organizations don't have their analytics aligned to their overall strategy. And it has to start with your, your strategy because at the end of the day, if the analytics aren't being built to inform hypotheses around where you should be going as an institution, as an organization, and invalidating or rejecting those hypotheses, then you're really just throwing fires in, in different programs that don't have a cohesive backbone and it will never get off the ground. I think the second, and this is a little bit counterintuitive as well, is before you get to real time, it's important to make sure you solidify the retroactive, um, the ability to use data post-factum to continue to either study, review, analyze, and then also to inform. But unless you have that created, real time will just, it will never take off because you don't have a foundation of financial literacy in your institution or analytical literacy in your institution. And in addition to that, the real time data is powerful not only in what it can provide point in time, but also real-time data should get to a much more detailed level of information. We're not relying ourselves on charge detail, patient encounter level detail, badge out detail that's been compressed to pay period cycles, et cetera. So if you don't have the ability to leverage the existing data that's in a much more clean structural 
uh, basis to drive analytics, you're never going to be able to take real-time data and then fully maximize it. And then the third is really looking at in, in self-inventorying right now three kind of core areas, people, data, and processes. And of those, processes probably feed the other two the most. You know, the other yeah. thing that, you know, we think about is trying to make the findings, you know, out there in the organization actionable. So how do you deploy them in ways that are actual? You've given us some good examples of organizations that you've worked with that you've seen that are doing some great stuff. Can you think of a couple other ways that maybe folks are out there in the industry doing it? Um, first one really harkens back to what I was saying before, that idea of significant figures. You can't have detail at one side and then uh, gross aggregated information on another. Those two just they don't work, right? And if you can't match at that level, you're limited to what that more high level, um, the less detailed version is. The second thing that we've seen is the idea of starting with scorecards. There's all this data, right? We all want to project and present various pieces of information. I mean, for instance, look at the COVID uh, detail right now. There are thousands upon thousands of really cool dashboards that when you look at them, aesthetically jump off the page. But when you kind of peel them back and say, does this give me insight? There's only really a very few finite number that do. And the ones that do do well are the ones that are more scorecard based. And I think the third, you know, doesn't matter at the end of the day what the data is, the analytics, it's the leaders. Analytics is only as good as what the, the users that are empowered with it can do. And it really takes a significant pivot, I think, in the way that we think about analytics. We're so focused on hospitals, right? What did the hospital do or what did my physician group do? We need to pivot the way that our leadership structure and our analytic kind of program orients to more of a service line patient customer management approach. And I think that you have the right leaders that can use the data in the right ways to do that. That's where the transformation is really going to occur. The last thing that I was wondering about is, you know, there's a lot of organizations right now trying to, to help the industry. They're looking at, you know, new tools, new applications. We're in crisis mode to some extent. Could you maybe give us some insight into into what you're seeing out there? Um, we've been working on a COVID-19 kind of projection tool that can give a user flexibility to forecast out using multiple different modeling techniques what the potential COVID growth rate and, and kind of expansion might look like in their specific markets. And not only what it looks like from a volume perspective, but also from an admissions perspective, a patient days perspective, and then use that information to really relate it to KPIs, related to expenses, um, core operational stats, FTEs, events, um, PPE, etc. It's time for us today to kind of pivot away from the traditional budget. And maybe we'll get back to it in a year once kind of this COVID clears up. But for the time being, we've got to get to a more dynamic planning tool. And so we've been working quite a bit with clients on how to use our rolling forecast tool and not to say that it has to be a specific tool, but the idea of moving away from the traditional budget and just recognizing that no matter how great of a process you put in, COVID numbers are just going to radically transform the results. It's time to kind of move to a dynamic planning process, but one that's intuitive enough that uses data science to be able to take in some of these anomalies and either include them or exclude them based on very advanced data scientific and prediction modeling techniques. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. 
Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Thanks to our sponsor this week, EPSI. And as always, you can reach out with your comments and questions at podcast at hfma.org. We're going to take that out.